0: So if you'll take your copy of God's Word and open it to the Gospel of John the 6th chapter. The passage this week has me thinking about motives and methods. What is it that you're after? And how are you going about trying to get it? Or asked another way, what are you pursuing? And how are you pursuing it? You know, motives can be funny things. Our actions on the surface can appear one way. But when our motives are exposed, some otherwise noble actions can be seen in a very different light. We're all here at church this morning. That's a good thing, right? But what's our motive for being here? What are we pursuing with our church attendance this morning? Motives matter. And so do our methods. Right? Even if we've got the right motive for doing something, is the way that we're going about doing it, is it, is it going to be effective? Is it, is it going to have the result that we hoped for? The crowd that Jesus encounters in the passage we're looking at today, they've got some issues with both motive and methods. Uh, And we would do well to consider our own motives and methods even as we look at theirs this morning. So let me ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 6, we're going to read 22 through 35. May God bless the reading and the preaching of this inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, uh, the bread of life, uh, would you come and meet with us this morning through your Holy Spirit. Uh, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, would you three together, triune God, Be glorified in our midst. Be pleased to reveal yourself. Be pleased to expose both our motives and our methods. Bring them into alignment with the gospel. That you might be praised. That we might be saved and changed. That's our prayer. Would you be pleased to grant it this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So the passage opens, and the crowd has realized that Jesus pulled a fast one on them. And they're putting two and two together. There was one boat. They saw the disciples take off in it without Jesus. And then they find Jesus on the other side. Now, we know from two weeks ago what happened. Right? Jesus... (laughs) Walked halfway across the sea, got in the boat, and finished the journey with them. But the crowd is very intrigued. The crowd is very curious about this mysterious man. And that leads them, we see at the end of verse 24, to be seeking Jesus. This is a good thing, right? Just like your church attendance this morning, that's a good thing. Their seeking Jesus is a good thing. At least it certainly appears that way on the surface. But Jesus knows their motives. We've already seen plenty of evidence in John where Jesus knows what's on the inside. He's got divine knowledge of what folks are thinking, what they're feeling, what they're seeking, So when the crowd meets up with with Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and man, if they got a big question for him, when did you get here? How did this happen? We know something's up. Jesus ignores their question. And goes on to expose their faulty motives. See, he knows they're after the wrong thing. And what we're going to see through this passage is a, a bit of a progression. And, and I've given that to you in form of an outline in your worship folder. Uh, we're going to see them progress from pursuing the wrong thing, and so that's a, a bad motive, if you will, to they're then pursuing the right thing but going about it in the wrong way. So a better motive but the wrong method. And then finally, Jesus is going to reveal the only combo that works. The right motive combined with the right method, and we'll need to explore that a bit to see how and why that works. So, what's wrong with their motive, first off? What are they after? Verse 26. Jesus is revealing that their pursuit of him is based on, it's motivated by their prior physical satisfaction. Remember the loaves and the fishes? Remember how it says they ate their fill? They ate as much as they wanted. And again, that was probably a rare occasion in those days. And I'm sure that it felt good to have a full belly, right? Hopefully we're all going to feel good in about 30 or 45 minutes, right? Bellies full of pork loin and potatoes. And I think I saw a cheesecake back there. So the crowd is saying, hey, let's keep hanging around this guy and see what else we might get. So what on the surface appears noble, they're seeking Jesus. When motives are exposed, oh, they're seeking to get something from Jesus. That's quite different. See, Jesus isn't the object of their desire. What he can offer is what they desire. That's two very different things. Why are you here this morning? What motivated you to get out of bed? Get in the car? Drive on over? What are you seeking? Joe said he's here for the lunch. (laughs) Are Are you seeking Jesus? Or are you seeking what Jesus can offer? Since food is at the heart of this crowd's experience with Jesus thus far, Jesus continues with food as an analogy. It's okay to be on a quest for food, Jesus says. Just make sure it's the right type of food. Not food, verse 27, that perishes, but food that endures. Now, Jesus uses the language of work here. He talks about don't work for the food that perishes and by implication, work for food that endures. Um, so I think it might be helpful if you keep thinking about that working in terms of pursuing the language that I've already kind of been using. right? Because this is not working. Uh, In terms of earning something, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not talking about uh, working for life and and food that that will endure. Because he goes on to say in this verse, he's going to give it to you, right? Uh, Work for the food that leads to eternal life. The son will give it to you. So um, think about it in terms of a pursuit, not in terms of earning. Jesus knows That the only reason they're pursuing him at this moment is for earthly, physical, temporary satisfaction. And Jesus exposes this base desire so that he might awaken in them the possibility of something so much more important. That he might awaken in them a desire for something that will last far longer than any food they might ingest. A type of food that will lead to life of a completely different quality. So something that we should keep in mind here, it mentions eternal life. right? When the Bible talks about eternal life, it is not merely talking about life that goes on forever and ever and ever. Right? It's not just the length of that life, it's the quality of that life. It's an entirely different type of life that Jesus is offering and that he's talking about here. And so in our progression here that we've got with the crowd, it does seem like this idea resonates with the crowd a little bit, right? At least in some small way, there's a shift, a little shift in in their motives, it seems, from seeking the wrong thing, more bread, more fish, right? To seeking the right thing. Oh, eternal life, food, food that will endure. So that's a good thing. He exposed their... Motives, almost out of the blue, they weren't even asking to be exposed like that. But now they're going to expose their own wrong methodology all by themselves. Shifting attention from a bad motive to a better motive, but the method's all wrong. And they're going to show us that by the question that they ask in verse 28. So they understand enough to know that they ought to be seeking something a little loftier than just the next meal, than just a full belly or whatever other physical satisfaction it might have been that they were uh, looking for. But now we're going to see that their means of going about that pursuit, that new motive, well, they're still mistaken. Uh, Unwittingly, they even reveal quite a bit of pride and arrogance in their question. Because they ask Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do means they actually think they're capable of doing something. They think they're actually capable of doing whatever it is that Jesus might tell them that the Lord requires. Now, the last time they asked a question, he ignored it. He's not going to ignore this one. They asked about works, plural. What are the works of God that we should be doing? And Jesus' answer is one work, singular. And his answer is explosive like dynamite. It blows a hole wide open in their preconceived notions about how one might go about pleasing God. And if you hear it, it ought to blow a hole in your preconceived notions as well about how God is pleased. The question they ask is ages old. Or we see it all throughout Scripture. What must I do to have eternal life? What is the most important commandment? Right? It's asked lots of different ways, but it's all getting down to this base thing that the human heart comes hardwired with. How can I be right with God? And the way that the crowd asks the question, well, that's hardwired in our hearts too. Because we all instinctively ask, oh, what must I do? What must we do to be right with God? So how very stunning and a little anti-climactic verse 29 for Jesus to answer the way that he does to say that the singular work that pleases God everybody's listening, they're ready E.F. Hutton believe trust the one that he sent that's it? that's the best you got? That's the sum total of your answer? Believe? Yeah. That's it. Highlight this verse. Underline it, star it, whatever. I come back to this verse again and again and again in teaching, in preaching, in trying to explain the gospel to people. I come back to it again and again and again because nobody believes it. See, everybody wants to put a comma in Jesus' mouth after this and add a list of other requirements to it. The work of God is to believe the son he sent, comma, and if you'll just do all these other things that nice Christians do. seems incredibly lopsided it seems as if we don't contribute to our obtaining eternal life it seems as if we don't have a part to play in our salvation and I come back to this verse again and again and again to remind to reinforce, to reiterate that yes it is very lopsided it is a one-sided affair this is not synergism, that was the big word in business a while back, synergism, a cooperation of efforts. This is not a cooperation of God's efforts with our efforts. This is a unilateral, autonomous, monergistic, not synergistic, effort of God, saving sinners all by his lonesomeness. This is the right motive combined with the right method. Pursuing eternal life, and again, that's life. That's more than just it lasts forever, but pursuing eternal life, this, this heavenly spiritual kingdom quality of life, through the method of simply believing, simply trusting the Son sent by the Father. This is a bombshell that goes off for the crowd that day. And it's going to be interesting, continuing later on in John 6, to see that one of the results of this bombshell is that people quit following Jesus. It it does not compute for them. I'm going to save that for later. But it must have rattled them really badly because the next thing they do is ask a really stupid question. Verse 30, the next thing out of their mouths, the best they can come up with is, uh, what sign do you do? What credentials do you have, if we're supposed to believe you? Uh, What work do you do, sir? Now, this is really a duh moment, right? This is the crowd that just saw the feeding were fed by this miraculous feeding that they realize he somehow mm, magically divinely supernaturally transported himself across the sea but what sign do you do with this but it's this last question this what work do you do you that's the key right there i think that's how we're going to make sense of this thing that We need to clear up all the crowd's confusion because, boy, they are confused. Uh, There is still a huge disconnect. So show us a sign. They're saying, you need to impress us. Show us why you're worthy of us believing you. Uh, Now, they've obviously connected the dots a bit between what Jesus did in that miraculous feeding and what Moses did in the wilderness and the manna, because they've got Moses on the brain and manna on the brain. And they're thinking, all right, do something great like he did that he just did. But, but anyway, we'll, we'll go with it. Do something like that, Jesus. Knock our socks off. They're still hung up on this physical and temporal. And so we see in verse 32, Jesus is trying to get them to see the difference between what Moses did and what he's about to do. Moses Gave bread, if you will. He didn't really give it. He just mediated the process. God was giving the bread. But Moses was involved, so we'll give him that. He gave physical bread. Bread that spoiled and perished. Bread that people ate, and those people spoiled and perished. Nothing lasted with that. It was not heavenly bread. It was not bread from heaven, Jesus says. But... What the Father is now offering is true bread. What the Father is now offering in the Son is bread from heaven, bread, verse 33, that will last. It will never spoil, it will never perish, and those that partake of this bread will never spoil or perish. But the crowd still doesn't get it, bless their hearts. Um, Verse 34, it's much like the woman at the well. Right? When, when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, and he's talking to her about this, this living water. It's, a, it's an unending source that will well up. She's like, sign me up for that. How do I get a subscription of that? Because I'm tired of lugging this stuff back and forth every day. It's hot and it's heavy. Yes, please. Living water sounds great. And so they're like, oh, yeah, great. Give us this bread all the time. And so as a final way of trying to connect the dots for them, help them understand the kind of real bread that he's talking about and offering to them, we have the first of several I am statements in John's gospel. You want bread, do you? Jesus says. Well, verse 35, it's me. I am, again, so we're... We're hearkening back we're, that's a, that's a, those are triggering words for them right? that they've heard bunches and bunches as, as the good Jews that they are I am bread I am the bread that gives life y'all they were so hung up on Moses do something great like Moses they wanted what Jesus does isn't even in the same category with what Moses did Moses gave bread or mediating the process. Jesus is bread. Jesus gives himself. Because, of course, for bread to benefit anyone, well, it has to be broken. you got a, a beautiful loaf of bread fresh baked on the counter, the aroma wafting through the air. That bread's not doing anybody any bit of good until it is broken open. They asked Jesus, What work do you perform? What will you do to impress us? Well, the work Jesus will do is to give himself in our place. As a substitute, the work Jesus will do is to be broken for us, paying the penalty for our sin and rebellion. Which is just half of what he does. Right? He takes our punishment on the cross. That is half of his work for us. What's the other half? Go back to their question 28. Right? Part of their impulse in that question was correct. There are works that need to be done to please God. There are works that have to be done if we're to be right with God. The part of their question that wasn't right was thinking that they would be the ones doing those works. No, the works of God that have to be done are done by the Bread of Life. They're done for us. They're done in our place, because and it has to be that way because we are unable, incapable, to keep God's law perfectly and completely. But the Son perfectly completes all the works, plural, of God, so that we truly only have one work, singular, to perform, and that is to believe, to trust, to rest in the fact that he has done it, that he has paid for our unrighteousness and given us the gift of his righteousness freely. See, that's the right motive combined with the right method. We're to seek Jesus simply because he's Jesus. Not for what he might do for us, but because of what he has done for us. We seek him, we believe, we trust, rest in him, and everything else flows from that. Now, the reason what Jesus says in verse 29, The only work that pleases God is to believe in the Son. The reason that is such explosive dynamite was because it contradicted what was so deeply ingrained in their thinking about how religion was supposed to work. And it's still deeply ingrained. About 15 years ago now, some researchers at UNC Chapel Hill were studying religious beliefs of teenagers And then they discovered that what they found was really kind of true across the board and not just with teenagers, but they coined a new phrase as a result of their findings. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, I had it up on a slide, but you can't see the slide. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And that phrase captures well what most folks believe about how life works in relationship to God. I, I dare say, 90% of folks out on the street, if you ask them what it meant to be a Christian, what was Christianity about, they would give you some version of this moralistic therapeutic deism. So let's unpack that just a bit, because I think I think it's what's going on here in this passage. So it's deism, right? It is a belief in God, a belief in a deity, right? And it is based on a motive, and the motive is therapeutic, right? What good will come to me as a result of my involvement in this religion or relationship or whatever it is? My relationship with God, they're thinking, will provide good things and not bad for me. And it's got to be good things in the way that I define good, right? Comfort, ease, health, wealth. So that's the motive, right? It's going to be therapeutic. It's going to be good for me. Their method is moralistic. The way I push the buttons, the way I pull the levers to get the good stuff from God is through my behavior. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. If I'm a good little boy or girl, God's going to bless me. It's going to give me good stuff. What works must we do, the crowd asked Jesus. To get what we want from God. And that is unfortunately how we often default to living life. Thinking that's how we relate to God. If you've ever said, or if you've ever heard someone say, gee, I'm not sure why this is happening to me. I thought I did everything I was supposed to. You ever said that? You ever heard somebody say that? I I don't understand. I thought I pushed all the right buttons. I thought I pulled the right levers. Went to church. I gave. I I taught Sunday school. I did this, that, or the other. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That was the crowd's default. That was even the Apostle Paul's default until the Lord did a work of grace in his heart. Um, Philippians 3, if you've got your Bibles open, turn to Philippians 3. It's a great summary of right motive combined with right method. Because Paul had definitely been seeking to do works to please God. He had definitely been seeking a way to be right with God. But then grace exploded in his life And in Philippians 3, right there in the middle of the chapter, starting in verse 7, he had just listed a whole bunch of the stuff that he had been doing. He thought he had been doing the works of God. But then, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, see, that was my former motive. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. See, there's the the new right motive, right? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. This is the thing that's now driving him and motivating him. This is what he's now pursuing. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's more motive talk right there, right? That I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own wrong method that comes from the law, wrong method, but that which comes through faith in Christ, right method. The work is to believe the son that he sent, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then more motive language that I may know him and he keeps on going. Methods and motives. Why are you here this morning? What are you seeking? What is it that you hope to gain? Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit comes and assists all of us the answers to those questions? Would you continue to cause the scales to fall from our eyes? Some of us for the very first time that we might see Jesus as beautiful and as worthy all by himself because of who he is, not because of what he might give to us. Would you expose, in the kindness of your grace, would you expose our motives if there are anything other than seeking Jesus for Jesus' sake? Would you expose our button-pressing and lever-pulling trying to get you to do stuff for us? Would you show us the beauty of the gospel? the worth of Jesus so that we might be like Paul and say, that's all I want is him, to know him, to be found in him. Thank you for that righteousness that is available to us that we so desperately need and that is available to us freely, simply by believing and trusting. Holy Spirit, come even in these moments and do your work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.